This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Blue Bottle, the specialty coffee roaster dedicated to getting the most delicious coffee to anyone who asks for it. Subscribe to the new Blue Bottle at Home service and you'll get freshly roasted coffee or espresso sent to your doorstep. Subscribe now and your first shipping charge is on us. Go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash redeem and use the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Totally Obsessed Edition. It's Wednesday, December 3rd, 2014. On today's show, Black Mirror is a British TV show. It's a gloriously weird and dystopic take on the entwinement of technology and our lives. And irony alert, it's now available streaming on Netflix. And then... (laughs) That was for you, Julia. That one got me. (laughs) (laughs) And then a double dose of Wonder Willa. Willa Paskin joins us to talk about, first about the state of cultural obsessions and then about the decline of the network sitcom. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the editor of Slate.com, Slate Magazine. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens. Dana is the film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, let's dive right in. Black Mirror is a British-produced TV anthology, which means there's no continuity between episodes other than a broadly thematic one. Its creator, Charlie Brooker, has said it's a, quote, hybrid of the Twilight Zone and Tales of the Unexpected, which taps into our contemporary unease about our modern world on all the stories are tinged with techno-paranoia. Each episode basically explores a different aspect of how our lives are degraded by technology. It was recommended to us by none other than Julia, who recommended it. Natasha Leone. Yeah, at our live show in L.A. And what was funny was the audience, as soon as she said it, kind of went, or a portion of the audience went bananas. Uh, We've been meaning to catch up with it. It's kind of a culty thing that maybe hasn't been so easy to find now. It's quite easy to find. It's on Netflix. Uh, Why don't we listen to a clip, and then we'll dig in. Gina, over it. Come here a second. I just want your opinion. It's just a silly game. Just answer this. No, I'm a serial monogamist. I'm staying faithful to my cornflakes right now. (laughs) Now, is that funny? Uh, There's no need to be nice. The man's a prick. Is that funny in your opinion? 
Well... No, I'm a serial monogamist. I'm staying faithful to my cornflakes right now. <laughs> um, no. No. I don't know. You do? Hey. Hi. Morning. What's this? I'm just getting Gina's opinion on something. No, I'm a serial monogamist. I'm staying faithful to my cornflakes right now. <laughs> I was just wondering because... You found it funny, but it clearly isn't, and Gina agrees. Okay, so just to offer a little explanation for our listeners, what we're hearing there is uh, the protagonist of the third episode of the first season of Black Mirror takes place in a world where everybody has a memory chip implanted behind their ear, where they record everything they see and feel at all times, and they can replay what they've seen in the past. And at a dinner party the night before, our protagonist, Liam, Uh, noticed his wife laughing maybe a little bit too much at the joke of a bon vivant at a dinner party. And he's stayed up all night obsessing about it and replaying it and drinking too much. And in the morning, he dragoons their nanny who slept over into uh, watching it and adjudicating whether his wife was too enamored of this other party guest. It's super awkward. And you can see how the technology makes it even awkwarder in, in this kind of awful, awful moment in the episode. Oh, that's a great summary. What'd you think of the show? It was so good. I mean, it felt like a movie. It was 48 minutes and it was it was a totally satisfying little dystopic story that was beautifully acted. Actually, the protagonist Liam is played by Toby Kebbell, who was now I Oh, can't... the young ape in the last planet of the he apes. He was movie. Koba. The, he was the bad guy ape. The in, bad guy ape, you're right. In Rise of the Dawn of the something of the planet of the apes. <laughs> Breakfast of the planet <laughs> of the apes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Croissant of the planet of the apes. Um, anyway, so uh, it's funny to see him play sort of a soft-faced Brit instead of a scar-faced ape, but he's kind of a wonderful, obsessive um, good guy gone bad in this episode. And you just see how technology plays into the classic things that can ruin a marriage, like obsession and jealousy. But technology-abetted obsession and jealousy get even worse I thought it was great. It made me want to devour the whole thing. What did you guys think? Oh, just the first thing it made me think was just like, British tele- television is just so many cuts above anything you can see on American TV. I mean, people are going to come at me with examples of, you know, great American sci-fi on TV. But this is, is real sci-fi the way The Twilight Zone was, where a, a very specific speculative premise about some extrapolation of a, a current trend into a slightly dystopic future is just bundled into this neat little episode with the perfect twist at the end. I love that the episodes are freestanding. Mm-hmm. That's always something I like in a TV show, that they don't demand seriality and faithfulness and deep mythologies and make you feel guilty for not keeping up every week. You really can pop each one individually in any order. I like that. I love that it was really writing-driven. The voice of Charlie Brooker, this guy who has, I think, written all the episodes so far. He's not the director, but but is the, the writer and creator of the show, is so distinctive. It's so distinctive that I almost feel like after a while, it might start to feel like he has the same obsessions and themes and is telling similar stories over and over again. But so far, they've all been tons of fun. Uh, yeah, I love the fact that there are only three episode seasons that come in these little triptych, you know, packets. So they don't feel as though they're being cranked off of an assembly line and the sensibility is going to start to wear on you. Not only are they beautifully produced techno dystopia science fiction genre pieces, they're also beautifully observed comedy of manners. And it seems to me that these are the two, especially the third of the three, it seems to me these two things don't necessarily always go together quite well, that there's a kind of somewhat overblown 
kind of gearhead quality to a lot of science fiction and it minimizes the human impact of the relationships and the genre is set up for that because it's about muted or somehow how human intimacy has been made obsolete by technology. That isn't exactly what's going on here. Episode one is kind of a political thriller. The second episode is sort of a more full-on futuristic dystopia complete with a denatured masturbatorium, which I I wonder if you can get that out of the SkyMall catalog. (laughs) And then the third one is kind of a more of a upper bourgeoisie comedy of manners, all of them inset within a sci-fi premise. I mean, most obviously the second one. It's incredibly well done. I mean, we're going to talk later in the show about obsessions and how they happen. I'm now completely, utterly obsessed. To me, this is the best TV I've seen possibly since we've started doing this podcast. The quality of the acting, the writing, the directing, the production values, the intelligence of it, the subtlety of it, I think this is superlative. I think there's also something fun about the standalone format because it's more like a short story and it forces the science fiction to stay more in the realm of ideas than plot. I'm thinking about the other really compelling sci-fi show we saw recently, which was Orphan Black, right, which we talked about earlier this year, which I liked, which was a Canadian production and is compelling in many ways, but which I stopped watching. I mean, I sort of devoured a bunch of episodes before we recorded that segment, and then I didn't like the Kid in Peril plot line. And, you know, that world was complicated and interesting, but eventually it got so far into the mechanics of the plot that it didn't feel like it was necessarily about this idea of cloning anymore. It was about evil organizations and secret scientists. And, you know, it had some fun send-ups of the different worlds that Tatiana Mesley's many characters get into. But I don't know. This felt more theoretical, but in a way that was super palatable and fascinating and kept your mind turning and wasn't just the recursive, like, plot-driven pleasure center of what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next, what's going to happen to that person was a little more removed and yet still totally snackable, which Mm -hmm. I think is kind of a rare combo. Yeah, and it does have a little bit more of a movie quality. Each each episode feels finished. You wouldn't want to necessarily revisit those characters or those particular questions or ideas. It's like The Twilight Zone where that idea is kind of played out to its final twist of logic and then and then left behind. The second season, the second three episode season begins with this really wonderful episode with two movie stars in it. I mean, I guess in, in Britain, there's a lot more permeability between TV and movies, but Donald Gleason and Haley Atwell, who are both wonderful in the episode, play these two lovers who are, this is not spoiling much because it happens at the beginning, separated by death. One of them dies, but there's a technology that allows you to sort of reconstruct your your dead loved one from their, their tweets and Facebook posts and all of their online information, and uh-huh. you can pool it with photographs and sort of create a virtual image of that person who will talk to you. It's a really great, creepy idea. It's sort of reminiscent of her, Spike Jones's her from last year, but also has this this ghost story kind of element to it. And it's just, it's, I think, maybe the best one of the ones I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I, also, I, I should say that my I loved all of it. I loved least maybe the first one. And for people coming to it, having heard our raves, they may find the first one, correct me if I'm wrong, a little bit didactic, and that can raise some people's red flags. Didactic in the sense that it's a, you know, it's a heavy premise, it's hit pretty hard, and it's meant to you know, really drive home the state of the public mood and its relationship to how we place ourselves in these virtual worlds. Nonetheless, what I was, um, even in that episode, the emphasis on the human cost is not didactic at all. It's told 
intimately. So at the center, giving nothing away at the center of the first one for all of its, you know, huge MacGuffins is a marriage. And it's really assessing the levy that this experience uh, takes upon that marriage. And that seems to me consistent throughout, which makes me think it can stay fresh for episode after episode. Yeah, the first one is hard to take. The first one is sort of sadistic toward the viewer and very sadistic towards its characters and might give you a sense that the show is more grueling to watch than than the rest Mm -hmm. of the episodes seem to be bearing out. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, we're in accord here. This is tremendously uh, well-produced, intelligent uh, TV. Yes, three thumbs up. Yeah, soak it up while it's snack it up while it's on Netflix. For sure. All right, so it's Black Mirror, it's on Netflix. We all love to check it out and we would love to hear what you think of it and whether you've gone through all of its uh episodes and on and on and on at facebook.com slash culturefest. Is it coming back? Is there more? This is the problem with British TV. It's like you can never tell. Is there gonna be a season three? Steve, click it up for us. All right, let's just uh Google it up here. Black Mirror to return with quote unquote disturbing Christmas special uh, <laughs> clicking on the low oh no oh, what do you see describe it for listeners oh, and us it's horrifying it's a bunch of people in some kind of like either bus or airplane cabin with like weird almost Guy Fox like masks on <laughs> they're all they all have very similar hair and they're looking all into their devices Oh, my God. And it could be us. (laughs) Pass the eggnog. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Black Mirror. Moving on. (laughs) All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have this week? We have a super awesome new sponsor. I think yet another sponsor that you've endorsed of your own volition over the past couple of years, Steve. Blue Bottle Coffee Roasters. I think some people know. It's an Oakland, California-based specialty coffee roaster, which is dedicated to getting the most delicious coffee possible to anyone who asks for it. And in September, they launched a new service, Blue Bottle at Home, which is a digital subscription that gets freshly roasted coffee to your doorstep. Too too sweet. And by the way, Danny, you can correct my pronunciation. Wait, 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 pause. What pause? What did you just say? You it gets it there how? Toot de sweet. <laughs> Dana, say it yourself. <laughs> Do you just say toot sweet? I think in general the duh is kind of elided in, in pronunciation. It's yeah. elided a little bit, but not in the oh-so-cute way that Julia Turner <laughs> says it. Well, I was going to just say Toot Sweet, but it's spelled out here in the ad copy. They, this yes, ad the copy French is, do something. is so close to our own hearts that they put pompous French uh, words in it, just like we do, you guys. This is but We're, we're so psychographically insane. <laughs> Setting aside your passive-aggressive dig about my pompousness, the French liaise between words. So when they, even though it says Toot de Sweet, they say Toot Sweet. Fine. Dana, how do they say this coffee is so delicious? <laughs> <laughs> C'est superbe. What the lady said. Well, so this is the perfect service for our listeners because our podcast can reach you no matter where you are in the world. But can delicious coffee? Some of you may be so lucky as to live near an excellent coffee purveyor. But if you do not, or if you have a blue bottle hankering, you can sign up for Blue Bottle at home and choose any coffee you'd like to subscribe to: drip coffee blends, espresso blends, or single origins. And set your amount and cadence. So you could get a 12-ounce bag every week or a 36-ounce bag. uh, And you could get them every one week or every four weeks. Whatever works for you, depending on how... Basically, depending on the nature of your addiction to caffeine. Did they use the word cadence in there, too? This yeah, is they the did. greatest ad copy This is like the most beautifully written Excuse ad copy. Excuse me, cadence? 
I'm just going to publish this on Slate.com. Anyway, um, from there, you just kick back and wait for your coffee to arrive. So go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash redeem and enter the promo code CULTURE. Subscribe to any amount and cadence, and your first shipment is on us. All right, that's Blue Bottle. Steve, what's next? All right, thanks, Julia. Moving on. Adults used to obsess about things in a more steadfast manner, so writes Slate's wonderful TV critic, Willa Paskin. Willa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, I hate the adults used to genre, but this, <laughs> I have to say, I have to say this is a wonderful piece and perhaps my favorite piece that you've written for Slate, and it's not easy to pick one out, but this is really a tremendously smart piece of writing. Anyway, you go on to say... Adults used to obsess about things in a more steadfast manner by having long-term interests known as hobbies, whatever happened to those, or they obsessed with downright stately occasionalness when something out there really gripped the nation. Now, however, we are engaged in a near-constant cycle of being totally obsessed with a cultural object and perpetually on the lookout for that next binge experience. Why are we getting hysterically excited about very good but not hugely original cultural products seemingly every other month? Why have we turned into compulsive obsession seekers? Um, I also hate why have we turned into pieces. This one transcends it completely, uh, is a wonderful piece of writing, and now I want an answer. Why have we turned into these obsession seekers? Well, firstly, I also hate adults used to pieces because I find them usually so specious. But I would say that in my own, like, lifetime as an adult. I've experienced this change. I feel like even seven years ago or five years ago or three years ago, there was some different relationship to things that were really, that I really loved. And I was it less about everybody loving them all together. So yeah, I mean, I think Serial is obviously the latest example of this. But I think there have been a lot. True Detective and Serial are sort of the two most recent examples. And they and they share a lot in common. So it was kind of easier to see. Um, but just basically... Um, I think the internet has sort of made us all cheerleaders in a way for things that we like. There's all these, um, you know, Facebook or Twitter are asking you to share what you think about something, not in some measured way, but in some, this is the best or this is the worst. And there's a kind of megaphone effect as there is with sort of everything on the internet. And it makes mm -hmm. it feel like everyone you know is suddenly frenzied about this one thing, even if everyone you know is actually a really small group of people. That's totally fascinating that this the most open source and universal technology known to mankind actually creates cultural silos. But let's table that just for one second. I want to go back. What is it that True Detective and Serial have in common if you vent it out? What makes them uh, so perfect for obsession? Well, I mean, I think there's a sort of almost side tangent, which is that people really apparently are obsessed with mysteries and with stories that have like a narrative pull and, and engine. Um, and those two, I mean, True Detective and Serial, even though one is sort of true to life, one is a real crime story and one is totally fictitious, um, made everyone into detectives. You know, they turned everyone who was watching into sort of theorists about what's going to happen. Um, and so you see a lot of very similar things happening, which is just sort of obsessive on Reddit or uh, in smaller communities about what the supporting materials for this thing are. And then you just see people sort of talking about how obsessed they are with it because they just need to know what happens next. There's a sort of page turner quality. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that that isn't the only sorts of things that we've been obsessed with. I mean, I cited like Cronuts or Girls, which, you know, are not particularly plot heavy things. Um, but By I think, Girls, <laughs> you mean the TV the show? The TV though. show, yes. But um, <gasps> I, I like thinking about what the plot of a Cronut would be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just dough. Now I'm fried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, there, there is other things, but 
I think True Detective and Serial sort of lent themselves to it more. I mean, also, you know, there's things that aren't even cultural products per se. Like, I think the Malaysian flight, obviously that was a huge news story, but I think the way that people responded to it had some of this, where it was like, this is all I can talk about, this is all I can think about, this is all I want to read in my feed, and this is, I'm going to talk about it. And it was another mystery. It was where where did the plane go? I think that's so interesting. I mean, also because if you think about mystery as a genre, right, it's typically been a private shame genre. Like, you have the glossy foil-covered books next to your bed, but, like, you don't really want to fess, right? That it's like you, it's like the, it's not quite as bad as romance novels. It's but not it's as not bad as like, romance novels, but you're not like, oh well, have you read the new Laurie Moore? You know, you're, yeah. you're, it's like a, been more of a private genre, and now suddenly there are these socially acceptable ways to just be like wanting to know what's going to happen next in the story. The other thing that strikes me about your internet point is that I feel like five or ten years ago, everyone was saying, oh, the internet. There's going to be this whole new interactive mode of storytelling where everything's gamified, and you're kind of invested in the narrative, and you have your own avatar and you like pick up whatever people were inventing ideas that seemed very far-fetched and silly about how cultural products would shift and we would all be choosing our own adventure yeah in some kind of virtual landscape like picking up coins in concert with the protagonist of our narrative and what has happened instead is that it's not that you know one of the gaming companies has found a way to do this although they have in their own ways in their gaming world but that actually the con influence of social media and these different cultural products, whether journalism or TV or whatever else, have created one almost organically, right? It's like you kind of get to participate. You can go on Reddit. You can you can dig around. You can choose whether you want to spend hours on it or just do the kind of like basic level. Um, <laughs> right. But it kind of turns it into like an activity that's a bit more active than just Yes, I think we're all, there's an engagement level. It's like we stop being passive, even if we're not reading Reddit or trying to, you know, even if we're sort of trying to be spoiler free in a certain way, right? We want to talk about it up to the point where there are spoilers. Um, And I think also the thing when I was thinking about this is that there are these things that become sort of, they feel like they've become sort of group obsessions. But I think just even sort of more personally, it's how we relate to things that maybe don't get to that level. But like when you just binge watch a TV show or when you are reading some book that just came out, you know, you do it in smaller ways and that sometimes they rise to this level, but actually kind of the way we consume culture now is this often, you know, if you find something you really like, you're less inclined to just be kind of calm about that. Right. It's like we're all endorsers now. It's not just the endorsements on the Culture Gab Fest. We're all endorsing everything all the time. I mean, I think to a greater degree than before I read you on this, Willa, I mean, I feel like these are inchoate thoughts that we've probably all had about this phenomenon, but you you pieced them together in a way that made me feel more down on this phenomenon (laughs) than I would have thought I I had been had you pitched the piece to me. You know, I mean, I think for one thing, I mean, even just conflating, you know, two of your, your main examples, True Detective and Serial, both of them are about the the death of a young woman who essentially gets kind of buried underneath all the layers of analysis and exegesis and, you know, Yellow King <laughs> back reading and, you know, going on subreddits or whatever. And so they both do have this sense of like taking an actual, well, in True Detective's case, it's fictional, but still it opens on the the dead body of this young woman who then kind of gets gets buried under the storm. So that kind of creeps me out. And also there just seems to be if it is true that this this mode of relating and of, of viewing and of processing culture is on the rise, then it just it makes me feel like we're a nation of posers that all just want to be part of the club that like the latest well, cool thing. I think that that's exactly right, basically. I mean, I think one of the roots of this is about sort of belonging to some cohort of 
like-minded people or you fancy are like-minded people. So, I mean, in the piece I talked about how um, these phenomena are actually, like, smaller than they were in the past. You know, Serial is listened to by a million people a week. That's a huge amount for a podcast. But that's not a huge amount compared to... Right, like Roots. What was your number on Roots? Roots is 150 million people, you know, or or just even like, you know, Big Bang Theory, which is 15 million people. And and what starts to happen, I think, on the Internet especially is someone in the comments had suggested a, a number of people in the comments of this piece were like, I hate how you're using the word we here. I think you're using it all wrong. Who is this we? And And they're totally right. But that's sort of to the point, which is that. This kind, these kind of phenomenon create a we that maybe you feel like you belong to or maybe you don't. And if you feel like you belong, you feel like it's everywhere because for you and your sort of social group and your extended social network, it is everywhere. But that really alienates a huge amount of people for whom it's not everywhere, which is, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, if it's one million people listening to Serial or, you know, five million people have downloaded in total. That's most of America who's never heard it, who is not involved mm-hmm. in that we. And the one thing that I think your piece really highlights in a way that does crystallize the phenomenon and also kind of curdles your sense of it is there used to be genuine like countrywide cultural obsessions that reached tens, even hundreds of millions of people. Uh, then there was this moment of like nicheified culture where it felt like we were all alone, like staring through our own magnifying glass at like our own teeny little micro phenomenon. And now social media gives us the illusion that we're part of a huge club that's obsessed about a particular thing. But it's actually false. Like, it's still a pretty small But wait, you, you're making, no, you're making two completely con- contradictory points. You're saying, on the one hand, that it creates the illusion of being part of something that's semi-universal, and on the other, that it creates the pleasure of being part of an in-group that, you know, uh, segments itself off as somehow elitist or, 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 or more, you know, in the know by consuming this particular cultural object. Which is it? I, I don't... It seems to me these two arguments kind of run up against each other and cancel each other out. Isn't it as simple as, you know, people are discovering their elective affinities on the Internet and they enjoy discussing them in an ancillary way, both online and offline? I agree with everything about the piece. It's a beautiful piece. It's lovely in its rhetoric and argumentation. But I don't I don't quite. I can't get with the sinister gloss that we're putting on it, which I actually didn't find in the piece the first time I, I read it. Well, I think I think you're right, but I also think those things, this idea of wanting to be part of this collective, of this mass experience, and also sort of wanting to feel elite in some way, are not really as mutually exclusive as they might seem, just because of how quickly the internet allows your love of something to curdle into sort of a little bit of you know, disdain as you're joined by this cacophony of people you like less. You know, like, there is this way, even just talking about cereal, you know, where people are like, oh, have you heard it? And it was like in, in week four. And now it's week 10. And of course, people are still saying that because it's been 10 weeks. That's that's not a lot of time. People are still like, oh, have you ever heard cereal? Like, your mom is listening to it. Your friend has just started listening to it. There's still a groundswell of interest in this thing. But it feels to you, person who started watching, listening to it, you know, at week two, that they're kind of late to the party. And there's something eye-rolling about it and the number of think pieces about it and the mm-hmm. sort of just total cultural saturation. Um, and that doesn't mean that it wasn't awesome to feel like you had found this thing and all of these like-minded people, a lot of them were really interested in it. That that really happened. But it is also true that then it kind of makes you wonder, well, maybe your, ta- you know, maybe your taste was more 
pedestrian than you fancied it, you know, than you thought it was at the beginning. See, I have a totally different take on that, which is that I think, and I think this has been true for a long time for, like, magazines like Slate. Like, I think it can be... This is going to be like the snobbiest thing I've ever said on the show. I think it can feel like lonely to have good taste, right? <laughs> like, I think sometimes the experience of someone, like you look at the stuff that is wildly popular and you think, oh, that isn't that great. And then you find something that's truly excellent. And when you find other fellow travelers who also think that the truly excellent thing is excellent, you're like, wow, that's so great. It's so great that there's a community of people who agree that this excellent thing is excellent. And it's not like, screw them for also thinking it's excellent. It was my excellent thing. I feel like it's more like, awesome. That's so cool. I'm so happy that the world appreciates excellence, like more so than maybe I thought it did. I I think it does turn into a little bit at some point, like, I like this band. I don't know. I always hated that I liked this band. Of course. (laughs) I I mean, that is a hateable thing, but I don't I don't think it doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something that occurs to me thinking about all this is the way that social media amplifies hyperbole and that that producers of of content, whether it's Ira Glass helping to launch the serial podcast in, in connection with This American Life or, you know, just somebody trying to make their show go viral on the Internet, that the producers take take advantage of this consumer's need to kind of amplify hyperbole and to have something to be hyperbolic about. Do you see what I mean? That there's kind of a machine of hyperbole that, that we are enjoying being the, uh, the the disseminators of. I mean, I think there clearly is a machine, right? And, and we're part of that machine. So what's happened, the fact that True Detective and Serial, for example, the experience of them has mirrored each other so exactly, I think sort of suggests that we all know how this goes. HBO knows how this goes. This American Life knows how this goes. I mean, there's obviously, it has to be good and there has to be luck. But so do we as consumers also know how this goes, right? There's like the really excitable sharing it phase. Then there's a sort of like smaller backlash, like a think piece that sort of problematizes what's wrong with this thing that everyone loves, but it's not everywhere yet. Then there's sort of more like, no, no, it's really great. And, you know, and it kind of continues in each cycle of the backlash and the forelash, you know, (laughs) kind of our, you know, battle it out until the thing is over (laughs) and we forget about it and go on to something else. I love your fancy pirate talk backlash (laughs) and forelash. But but I, I have to interject here and just say, I I believe people by and large are much less creatures of mediated mediated desires than you guys apparently do. I mean you know, I think people make at the end of the day an independent judgment about liking something. There's then an echo effect, you know, as it ramifies out through either their social grouping or the culture at large. And you know, some people who have weak sense of self or weak taste, you know, need the feedback effect before they can get involved themselves or lose themselves to a phenomenon. But I I just really, I think that that's, I don't know. And then, and then kind of abandoning something because you read a think piece, you know, leading the way to a backlash. This all seems to me slightly exaggerated. I mean, serial is something that I enjoy talking about with smart people. I don't enjoy talking about it with dim people and it's no different from anything else. I mean, I think you're probably right that I'm talking about it from the perspective of someone who consumes media professionally. I mean, you you know, you said people find things because they have, you know, they have good taste, but also, you know, people find things because their friends tell them to watch it because it's not their job to be on the hunt for things. Like having recommendations of what's good is how you get interested in things for most people who have other jobs and, and aren't, you know, professional culture Culture consumers. I mean, I also think, you know, to Steve's point that it's not all hypermediated, I would also say to Dana, like, 
yeah, everybody's aware that there is the possibility to hit this particular slot machine in the culture right now because of the way Twitter works and mm-hmm. Facebook works and Reddit works and the kind of ecosystem into which new cultural products are launched. But like so many things get launched every day that just do not catch fire in this way. Like there still has to be a particular set of qualities for something to hit. And one of those qualities, I think, is being quite good. You know, like uh, uh, these these things both are very well made. These two recent ones we're talking about, True Detective and Serial, they're both very well made and compelling. And for whatever, I really think Serial is great. And I really ended up not respecting True Detective in many ways. But like there's the thing is well constructed enough to be worthy of some attention. And I think there is, it's not all just a like empty hall of mirrors hype machine. Oh, of course. I mean, otherwise Mm -hmm. the logic would be that every time something gets promoted into your social media, you would be wildly spewing it out to everyone else. But I'm just saying that there is now a cultural niche that didn't maybe exist before, didn't exist so clearly of the consumer of culture as you know, co-advertiser and co-disseminator mm-hmm. of knowledge yep. about culture and that there's an excitement in, you know, being at, being one of the ones who helps to discover and disseminate something at the beginning. This is beginning to feel like we've somehow turned Willa's very astute and sharp obsessions piece into like another episode of Black Mirror. Like I'm imagining the <laughs> dark world say. version of this where we like all go out and like kill a girl <laughs> together and then obsess about it. Like it just seems... <laughs> oh dear. It's beginning to seem very But dark. can I just say I'm very heartened that Steve is not embracing the uh, the declinist gloss on this one. He is actually saying, like, the way we use social media is fine. Everything's good. Just leave it alone. <laughs> I love, I love it. my happy, cranky pants voice, Dana. That was cute. Yeah, that's you on a park bench. <laughs> Four lashes for you. Um, all right. Uh, the piece is totally obsessed. The New Age of Cultural Manias. It's by Willa Paskin. Willa, I don't have to talk you up because you're sticking around. I am. For our next topic. All right. Moving on. Before we talk to Willa about uh, the sad decline of TV comedy, can I pause for a word? You're the boss. I'm pausing then. Um, I want to let our listeners know about a cool series we're doing on Slate right now. We are setting out to name the seven wonders of the modern world. The idea for this came from our observation that if you think of the ancient wonders of the world or even the big human achievements that you would think of as hallmarks of the 19th or 20th century, you think of these gigantic big, visible works of, like, physical engineering. You think of, like, the Brooklyn Bridge. You think of the Hoover Dam. You know, you think of the Great Pyramids. These are big, old, honking things you can go out and look at. And it occurred to us that when you think about the technological achievements of our current age, they're much less visible. They tend to be hidden more in the back end. They're, like, these algorithms and satellites and underwater cables and big pieces of digital infrastructure that have completely transformed our lives more so than like, you know, being able to cross from Manhattan to Brooklyn on foot probably, or at least affect more people than that bridge did. But they don't get sung as works of beauty as much because they are not as physically present and beautiful. So we are setting out to name the seven wonders of the modern world and sing the beauty of these interesting accomplishments. Dan Gross is writing the series for us. He's named three of them so far and is going to come out with the next four later this month. Uh, So check it out. It's a series that's been made possible by GE, and we're very excited about it. So look for that on Slate. All right, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, lucky us, Willa Paskin is sticking around for another segment. Well, I'm going to throw this one to you pretty quickly. It seems to me, in addition to the adults once were pieces that we both revile 
but uh, whose restrictions you transcended in your great piece. In addition to that, there's the sitcoms are now dead. They used to be great. There was a golden age. It's over. They're never coming back. That piece gets recycled every five years. Now it actually may be true. Do you lend it some credence? Well, so (laughs) there's two questions about the sitcom always, right? There's how well it's doing in the ratings, and then there's how well it's doing as just a funny great thing to watch. And those two things, as with lots of television, do not always elide. So right now, there is 100% a real crisis about the ratings of new comedies, which is they put all these comedies on the air this year. And one, the show Blackish on ABC about a black family has done well, and the rest have done very, very poorly. Most of them are single camera comedies, um, which is kind of the hip cool way to make a show now about 20-somethings and their love lives, and they have basically all failed miserably. And in addition, some shows that seemed like they were doing well last year, um, the kind of shows that are usually, you know, once you get through a first season, you keep making the show if you're the network because the idea is you get to 100 episodes and then you get all this money when you sell it for syndication. Um, so one of those shows, The Millers, which is a multi-camera uh, sitcom from CBS starring Will Arnett and Margot Martindale, had had a really good first season, and then they sort of moved it so it had a different time slot, and its ratings fell off half, and CBS canceled it, which was, you know, is alarming in a different way. It's, no one was arguing that The Millers was like this great, hilarious sitcom, although Margot Martindale was extremely game. Um, but it's just kind of alarming that even that show on CBS, which has sort of had such success with it, couldn't they couldn't make that work. So there's this real kind of like, how do you make people want to watch comedies right now um, when really it seems like what people want to watch is sort of appointment viewing? Right. I mean, in some ways, this topic is the perfect analog to the obsessions topic because – until the right comedy comes along, it's harder to obsess about a comedy, right? It, the, you know, sometimes there's like a romantic underpinning plot like Pam and Jim on The Office or something where you want to show up next week and see if they'll finally declare their feelings. But fundamentally, it's like disposable jokes week after week, you know. Right. It's not scandal. It's not like if you didn't see it, everyone's going to spoil it for you. And interestingly, sort of the shows that I think people feel that way about a little bit, like Louie and Girls, which are ostensibly comedy, but I think, you know, his relationship to (laughs) humor is um, much more fluid. (laughs) Tangential at best, you know. Um, Those shows do, I think, for their very small audiences, I mean, they both have very small audiences, kind of maybe do have a little bit of that. You had to see it so you can talk about it the next day vibe. But they are not comedies you know in any sort of classical sense of the word and they are all you know they don't they don't do what networks need them to do which is they're just not mass shows right i mean i think this is this is a thing i learned like way too late in life which is one of the funny givens of the television industry that makes no sense which is shows that are an hour long are dramas and shows that are (laughs) half hour long are comedies and that's just like how it is which is crazy you could do a half hour drama and you could do an hour long comedy and there have been a couple genre bending you know ali mcbeal is like the classically referenced like funny drama or whatever the dramedy people play a little bit but it is there are just these givens that underpin the industry that are hilarious and i think louis and girls both are like they're a half hour long so and they're made by comic people so they're comedies but like fundamentally they have a relationship to humor but it's not one that is necessarily (laughs) going to make you laugh i mean i think the thing the, the hollywood reporter sort of ran an article about this um this trend and and i and reading through it and all the problems that they've had you almost just thought oh what someone needs to do is make a serialized comedy right like 
again, this wouldn't help with syndication and maybe be a total disaster. But you're like, oh, someone could just try really hard to make a really plot-heavy show that is funny on purpose. Right. <laughs> you know, like as opposed to, you know, not being funny on purpose or being funny sometimes. Like if Brooklyn Nine-Nine had like a really compelling they, case at the yeah, center why, of it Yeah, why something. don't they do a season-long murder case? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but is that what people really want from their comedies? Like they, it's it, the tone would be hard to strike there. Like because the stakes, the whole the, the whole tension is the stakes have to matter so much that you want to know what's going to happen, and it's hard to then, you know, unless you're Lenny Briscoe, really be sh- shooting off the one-liners. Also, there is this kind of um, tension just. You know, when I don't know if you guys ever watch reruns, but occasionally, like, I'll be on my couch and I'll see that Friends is on, like, 10 episodes of Friends are on all the time. And I'll, and I'll be extremely pleased. Right. <laughs> and I will watch them. And there's something very sort of lovely about that. Or Seinfeld, you know, it's one of these shows that probably right now maybe nobody would be watching, although they're very funny. So it's possible that they would be watching. That's kind of what people are waiting for. Um, like, this idea that there is a sort of comfort food element to sitcoms that there just isn't to anything else that will serve us in, you know, five years or ten years. You know, Frasier on Netflix is this, too. But right now just is so unessential, feels so inessential to our TV diets that we're just never going to mm. get to the place where a show gets to be that again. But isn't this just part of a cyclical draught? I mean, wasn't the, weren't these same kind of concerns raised and hands wrung before the Cosby show came along, before Friends and Seinfeld and the 90s sitcoms came along? I mean, you know more about the cyclical history of TV than I, but aren't we just coming out of a period of 30 Rock, Parks and Rec, The Office, a lot of great sitcoms? So this is, again, the ratings issue because, yes, those were all great sitcoms. Only The Office was actually a hit. Parks and Rec has no viewers. So it's like 100% all of this stuff is cyclical. But the issue is that right now they can't make money even on the ones that are good. They can't get people to watch even the shows that are good. There is no audience for that, it seems, you know. And there's this ongoing question about whether it's literally the format, whether single camera shows will just not have this wide appeal. And and so people need to stop making them and actually just start making multi-camera shows again and maybe then the next friends will be around the corner or if just the audience for it has like just dissipated to a point that you just really like it's it's too late. Can you explain another given of the TV industry to me? I can try. So like why why are people so fixated on the single camera? Like does single camera really allow more sophisticated storytelling? Is it because it's more movie like and movie has more cred? Like why couldn't someone who is just like a super cool rapier wit, you know, t- but genre bending whatever person like most li- person most likely to reinvent the sitcom just be like, okay, I'm gonna do a cool show, but a multi camera cool show. So I wrote about this um, pretty extensively in my Mulaney review. Um, so Mulaney is a show that started on Fox this fall um, from John Mulaney, who had been a head writer, a writer at Saturday Night Live. He's a respected comedian. He's in the comedy world, you know, which is another tangent is, by the way, that comedy has probably never been more respected or obsessed over in its history than it is right now, even as sitcoms are having this. In the form of stand-up comedy yeah, and, and sketch, just, sketch comedy. And, and, and podcasts and just interest in comedians. But so he is a totally hip comedian, and he basically decided he wanted to make Seinfeld, his version of Seinfeld. I mean, he's he's a Catholic guy. He's not a curmudgeonly Jew, but it's in New York, and it was about him. And he works for Martin Short, plays a daytime talk show host who he works for, and it's about his sort of personal life, too. It has a great cast. It has a laugh track. And it's... It's totally terrible in this way that 
it's just not a good show. But he was trying. He sort of had this idea, like, I want to appeal to a bigger audience, which is sort of the same impulse. When Whitney had come out a couple of years ago, there was some sniping that the sort of executive producers had made about making a show for everybody versus kind of in, in contrast to NBC's Thursday Night Lineup, a single-camera shows. So, you know, and Louis C.K., before he made Louis, had made the show for HBO – also called Louie that Lucky Louie Lucky Louie yeah that was also uh, a multi-camera sitcom so people have sort of tried to rescue our our sort of hip people are kind of trying to rescue the multi-camera sitcom but the issue is just there isn't enough of them you know it's really hard to make a sitcom so you have to make a lot of them before you're going to get any decent one so but wait just just in terms of the structure like why would a show be more interesting because it has a single camera like is it just that you're not that it looks more real and yeah, it's less it's, like it's completely a fad we're always looking at this living room from the same angle well it looks more cinematic right oh, it doesn't it look looks, like a Norman Lear couch sitcom it looks more cinematic you can do a lot more like fun jump cut stuff like all of Liz Lemon's flashbacks or like those those um you know, quick cuts to some joke of when she was a kid. Like, you can't do those really in a multi-camera. And also, there is just this laugh track issue, which is, you know, people who use laugh tracks say, they're really people laughing, but really people laughing in a studio setting, I mean, they're really being forced to laugh. I mean, you ha- it's, it's, it's not a really authentic experience. And that, when it's, especially at the beginning, uh, it's just a taste thing, and it's also a thing you get used to. But when a show is not funny and you hear that, there's something, there can be something really grating about it that seems really not hip. Obviously, if you grow up on multi-camera sitcoms, which we all did, you get used to that. It's not a big deal when you don't laugh at the joke on Seinfeld that they say is funny. But I think on shows, especially when they start and they're really finding their legs and they're not good at all, there's something unsettling about it. But I think I think the answer is really like it's just in vogue right now. And probably it will not be because they really do need to try to figure out if multi-camera sitcoms to find to get really creative smart people making multi-camera sitcoms just even to figure out if that's a a true myth that the multi-camera sitcom would bring viewers back or not all right well um will thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about both of these topics it was uh, awesome to catch up with you thank you all right well now is the moment in our show where we endorse we have one bit of housekeeping first can i jump in Absolutely. So we have a correction. Last week, during our heated discussion of Mike Nichols and uh, the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Steve, I think you said that Mike Nichols had directed the stage version of the play from which he adapted the movie we talked about. And in fact, the director of that stage version was Alan Schneider. So uh, sorry, we biffed that one. Ah, whoops. Okay, corrected. All right, let's endorse. Dana, what do you have? I'm going to endorse a piece of criticism I read this past weekend that a lot of people were talking about. Maybe a lot of our readers have seen it. But if you haven't, I just wanted to direct you there because I think it is just really one of the best pieces of cultural criticism I've read in a while. It was Michael Kimmelman's brutal takedown of One World Trade Center, which is the new building, obviously, just opened on the site of the the Twin Towers. And... um, Architecture reviews aren't something that I necessarily follow as a rule, but I was very curious about this new building and uh, and what he had to say about it. And it was just a beautifully done piece of criticism on every level. I mean, you could picture the building perfectly. He described its physical aspects and what didn't didn't work about it. He talked about the history of the site and, you know, the arguments about what should be developed there. And then the moment that he just sort of takes the perspective back and looks at sort of all the awful values that are embodied in this this behemoth of a building. I'm just I'm going to think about that building which I already was not enthusiastic about completely differently after after reading Michael Kimmelman and I haven't even set foot in it yet. Oof. I'm like not sure I even want to read it cuz I don't want to it's like I already dislike the building enough. 
It's just it's 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 a grim piece of criticism because he essentially does sort of end up saying like you get what you deserve and we got the big ugly phallic behemoth that we deserved in this spot and the way that he takes down just kind of the hubristic phallocentric sheer size of the building and the fact that it's the tallest building in the western hemisphere whoop de doo is just something that's really funny but also sort of awful to read so we'll put a link to that on our show page the most amazing thing about that building is that it is it looks so squat and stumpy even though it is tall it's a feat of engineering to make something so tall look so that short doesn't and soar soar yeah. in the least it's very earthbound <laughs> oh my god anyway there it is um, on our skyline this this is truly one of the great falago centric takedowns <laughs> i've heard in a while uh julia what do you have um we were rolling through the old itunes playlist on the car ride back from thanksgiving and i came across an oldie but goodie that i just love um and it's called Ain't That Good News. It's a Sam Cooke version of the song that's just rollicking and jaunty and suggests hope for a romantic relationship that may or may not be founded in a way that has like joy and uncertainty and poignancy in it all at once. It's just a great, great Sam Cooke track. Do you guys know it? No. Not by title, I don't think. Maybe it'll be our outro. Yeah. It's, uh, it's super good. All right, so last week I threw out there uh, Attack on Titan, the anime TV show that my daughter has become obsessed with. Without having seen it, I threw it out there blind. I got an amazing feedback from listeners on other anime titles that might be appropriate for my daughter. And then I watched the actual first episode of the show itself. It is fantastically weird and cool. And uh, the aesthetic of it is just incredible. It's really interesting. I'm I'm psyched to watch the rest of it. So I'm going to throw another blind one out there, which is my younger daughter has to read out loud for 15 minutes every night. And last night, I noticed that the book that she was reading was intrinsically interesting and beautifully written. So it's a, called The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin. And everyone's going to Are you just discovering it? Yes. That's like one of my top five it, books of all time. Oh, I've yes. never heard of it. What? How that's how crazy. did I not hear? How was it kept? What techno paranoiac thriller am I waking up in that this was blanked out of my consciousness for, you know, half a century? This is ridiculous. It's amazing. I feel certain that I have endorsed this on this show. I can't I believe feel that certain I haven't. I ignored you completely <laughs> that day. I feel certain only that, that too. one time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I mean, literally, I only heard 15 minutes of it read out loud and was swooning uh, to the prose, to the premise, to the whole thing. It's in a puffin classic. I am so psyched to hear from listeners about this Wait, book. Wait, what is the premise? Just really briefly. The protagonist is one of the all-time great tomboy girl protagonists of young adult literature. Her name is Turtle, and she lives in an apartment tower in Chicago, and a neighbor... A mysterious neighbor has died and in his will has left a puzzle for all the residents of the tower to solve in a hunt for his inheritance. And um, it's great. There's great characters. There's great interplay. There's an actual mystery to solve. Perhaps if this were launched today, we'd all be obsessing about it going into the subreddit. It sounds like Steve's daughters are. Um, But it's just it's a great combination of like well-observed human foibles and plot. And the writing, I mean, really what got me was just, you know, overhearing five sentences of it read out loud consecutively. And I thought this is 
this is really special. It's by uh, Ellen you know, Raskin, right? I did she. I don't even know if she wrote other stuff, but it's such a I good don't, book. I'm gonna. Uh, she was born. All I know about her is that she was born in the 20s and died in 1984. And I'm about to go subreddit on her ass. I'm so obs- I'm obsessed. This thing is amazing. I mean, it, Dana, it's going to be right up there with like I capture the castle. This thing that I couldn't. I can't believe that I didn't always. No. Excellent. I noted it down already. And given that our your daughter and my daughter, your younger daughter and my daughter are the exact same age, I presume that she will get into it right now as well. I think yeah. that she would love it. All right. I if you guys read the Western game, I'm finally gonna read I Capture the Castle, which despite your like years of constant cavelling, I still haven't read. So I we can do a young adult exchange. You read it Deal. in the spring. It's a springtime book, don't you think, Steve? I think I gotta do it while while the going's good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Otherwise. It's uh, it's if it's always springtime if you're Julia Turner. In Julia's heart. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyway, guys, great show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dana Stevens. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Steve. One. Also, just before we go, we should shout out our listeners and their incredible love of anime. We got so many suggestions. Like people have been waiting for us to ask them about their anime preferences for six years. I, it was very cool. It was really heartening, and there was uh, also manga, which I guess is the comic book version of anime, and people were very detailed, very considerate, really a warm appreciation for the response that we got, absolutely. All right, well, thanks once again, guys. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. And the managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest for Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and this week for the wonderful Willa Paskin. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. All my babies coming home tomorrow. Ain't that good news? Man, ain't that news? Babies coming home tomorrow. Ain't that news? Man, ain't that news? I got a letter just the other day Telling me that she was on her way And she wanted me to meet her at the station Ain't that good news, man, ain't that news Hi, this is Mike Volo, host of Slate's language podcast, Lexicon Valley. On this week's episode, what does it mean to sound gay? We put that question to Benjamin Munson. He's a speech scientist at the University of Minnesota. Search for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store or visit iTunes slash Slate Podcasts.